Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. You know, our core philosophy is that we believe everyone has the right to dream. And that's something that applies to, you know, to every person on the planet with, with everybody's individual hopes and aspirations. And some of the journeys and outcomes that our kids achieve can be kind of inspirational for anybody really. And, and so the way that we're thinking about the brand is how can that kind of transcend football academies and, and football clubs. So say academies, clubs, and the brand are the, are the three areas that we focus on on growing and kind of define who we are. I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru, and our guest on this episode is Tom Vernon. Tom is the founder and group CEO of Right to Dream. This is a genuinely unique organisation built on the belief that excellence can be found anywhere. Tom launched Right to Dream in Ghana in 1999 and has since opened academies in the USA and Egypt, as well as buying a club in Denmark, the table-topping FC Norgeland. Tom told me about his journey and that of Right to Dream and what he hopes football as a whole can learn from them. I hope you enjoy the episode and if you do, please give us a follow via your podcast provider. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today, Tom. No, my pleasure to be here and um, obviously uh, uh, listen to the podcast a little bit, but certainly, um, you know, a lot of the print stuff that you do is massively valuable to me and to our organisation. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great to be here. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. How would you describe Right to Dream for someone who's never heard of it? The philosophy at academy level um, is that uh, we believe in uh, development of excellent culture through our character programmes and our purpose programmes. We believe in the development of uh, of the ex of excellence in 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 academics through our, our curriculums and our pathways and then we obviously believe in excellence in development in football so um a holistic model to development that is long-term commitment for every uh for every child and then uh trying to create the right pathway for every kid that's coming through our academies not just the ones that that, that get in into football so in a nutshell that's how i'd, I'd talk about the academies but then obviously right stream group has gone into um, you know, purchasing clubs as well, um, and 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 bought our first club uh, seven years ago now in in Denmark with FC Norgeland, and and there, um, you know, we see our clubs uh, to continue those principles that that I outlined at academy level, but also we see ourselves as kind of universities of football where um, where you can come and 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 take that final sort of step before really going out. I think. You know, Barcelona once said it nicely when they described their first team as their oldest academy team. Um, and maybe they've drifted away from that a little bit, but we certainly think about our clubs in 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 that kind of space. And then and then the last big piece of Right to Dream is that we think that our our broader brand and message has potential to inspire uh people who 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 maybe aren't in football or professional football, but um, you know, our our um you know, our core philosophy is that we believe everyone has the right to dream. And that's something that applies to, you know, to every person on the planet with with everybody's individual hopes and aspirations and some of the journeys and outcomes that our kids um, 
achieve can be kind of um inspirational for anybody really and and so the way that we're thinking about the brand is how can that kind of transcend football academies and and football clubs so you know say academies uh clubs and 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 the brand are the, are the three areas that that we focus on on growing and kind of define who we are going all the way back to the genesis of right to dream which i think was the late 90s could you just tell us a bit more about that please yeah you know i worked out pretty young i grew up in uh, in high wickham season ticket holder at wickham wanderers loved the game from really young and realized pretty young that I that I wasn't ever going to be good enough to play. Um, and and so started my coaching badges when I was 16 and uh, you know, and, and progressed through that fairly quickly. And and in that in that time, um, you know, jobs in football really felt like the preserve of um ex-pros. And um, and so I was trying to figure out how to get into the game and 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 had a connection to someone in Ghana who was connected with the biggest club in Ghana at the time, Hearts of Oak, even though half the country would dispute they were the biggest club they were, and uh, went down there on a coaching um, opportunity and and through um, <clears throat> and through a series of events, kind of got connected with um, the young players in my community and 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 started a youth team in in uh, in my community, um, and. Uh, saw saw kind of firsthand the challenges that they were facing to fulfill their potential and thought I could make a difference and at the same time saw um the likes of uh, Feyenoord and Ajax and Red Bull spending a lot of money um and as it transpired ill-advisedly and, and I felt at the time kind of ill-advisedly on trying to develop talent so started started right to dream from very very sort of humble beginnings with the first 16 players that, that that we picked moving into our house and and it was really kind of grassroots effort but at the same time seeing pretty big investments coming in that that subsequently all you know would be described as failures and seeing how sort of european football was getting it wrong and and um and that caused a lot of kind of what I describe as unlearning and and relearning for me as a as a as a white English guy trying to have an impact in in Africa about how to approach things. So, um, you know, started starting to build our own thing and learning from others and and you know, year every, I always at Christmas parties I say that it's always been our best year, and that for twenty three years in a row has been the case. And um, and so every year we continue to learn and continue to try and modify our model and our interpretation of what a, an academy should look like. So started really basic and and yeah, it's grown grown to where it is today. How were clubs getting it wrong in Africa at that time? Um, I think they had an extractive mindset, which was, you know, that you can set something, set something up in Ghana and then you can take the pieces that you want and you can discard the rest and you know that's been a general theme from um from europe towards africa for 400 years and 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 so you know this phrase kind of neo-colonial mindset um is, is something that you could see in some of the trends of how of of how those people who you know often very good people just naive and not well considered enough in their strategies were, were coming around and you know I, I also feel I arrived in Ghana with a similar type of mindset 
um, due to the way that we get brought up in the English public school system and um and and how our society is is constructed in England anyway um certainly if you're a white and and middle class like I was so I think that sort of neo-colonial and um and uh, and and naive and extractive um would be sort of themes of how you could see them behaving and and that was just really replicating the way that they did academies in in Europe but um but not enough consideration given to an entirely different context so you know what what I learned over time was that what we had to ask ourselves was how could we contribute to the national development agenda and what did the country need and how could we contribute towards that and so some examples of what that looks like is you know I started by just looking for the best players because I'd you know done my UA for training badges and thought that the solution I could make would be to try and produce a couple of you know good footballers but but obviously that you know meant that there would be many who wouldn't make it and and, and what about them so you know one of the first pieces was like okay let's let's build the education as 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 good as we can and build relationships in America so that our kids could go to university if they weren't going to make it as footballers and and at that time, we had no idea where they were going to go as footballers anyway. You know, it was, it was basically just a youth team in Accra. But we tried the best we could with education and we built pathways in education. And now we've raised over $50 million of, of educational scholarships in America and have and have kids attending, um, uh, you know, Stanford and Ivy League schools and all that kind of stuff. So that was part of trying to make more of a meaningful contribution and then we realized look if we're scouting in a community um we shouldn't just go in for the best male player we should look at girls as well and that's how we founded and still run the only residential girls football academy um i think anywhere in the world and um and then we also realized that that when we understood the american system that some of our players who might not make it as pros that could be a pathway but if we were in the community and we academically tested all the kids we might find some incredibly bright kids who were good enough at football to end up going to the world's best universities so we added that into our into our philosophy in the desire to make the best contribution we could to Ghana <clears throat> and so now we admit kids in who we um you know hope that they might be able to play professional football and so do they but what we know is that they're going to be able to um get a world-class education for free and then whether they play pro or not are going to be able to um you know be able to go on and do amazing things and and we hold George Weir up as a huge example at Right to Dream and he was one of my first mentors in Africa you know as somebody who can win the Ballon d'Or and then go back to university and become president of their country and so all those kind of like multiple recruitment strategies and the kind of people that we role model at Right to Dream was our way of, of saying, you know, we want to try and make, we want to be part of Ghana's development and we want to try and make the best contribution that we can rather than, you know, replicating a model, which is fundamentally broken in Europe anyway, in Africa, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So all those things have kind of evolved and matured and, and we apply them into different places in different ways. And, and in Egypt, that's the question that we're asking ourselves is, is, is how can we contribute? And in America, it's the same thing, you know, where 
the pay every you know everybody i meet in american soccer is saying the pay to play system is the problem so we're saying right well how can we come in and 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 make a contribution there so that's that's how we sort of drive our our thinking and 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 reason for being um what sort of level of club are you looking at would it even be like mls level yeah, yeah. fantastic and when do you think we might get some more news on that uh, <laughs> uh, soon yeah, right okay and this is a big problem and a big issue in the English system at the moment, isn't it? Where all the kids who don't make it as pro footballers, which is the vast majority, what then happens to them, you know, and have they had good experiences? Um, so it applies over here as well. I think so. And, and um, you know, one of the things that I think is amazing is, is if you, you know, you can sit down anywhere in America with a, with a 60 year old, man or woman and they still talk with pride about being a graduate of the university that they went to and so that affiliation with their you know that brand and that experience lasts a lifetime and really if you look at um the experiences that academies are offering young boys typically not many girls getting those opportunities it's a phenomenal experience to you know uh, travel the world find out how to push yourself to achieve your very best, make friends, um, you know, be in an environment that teaches you about so many things. So why, why, you know, even at 22, a lot of, a lot of these lads are talking with a degree of bitterness about the experience that they had there, especially if they didn't make it, let alone at 60, where they probably don't even reference it. Like, you know, a graduate of Duke or Stanford or whatever is still talking about it all the time. And so there's something like fundamentally wrong with the fact that that you know the majority of kids who don't make it aren't like proud brand ambassadors of of of, of the academy. And so um, you know what we're trying to do in terms of the holistic experience that we provide, and the fact that in the environment, all of our kids and even the ones who may go on to become top players can see that we're trying to do the right thing for every kid means that that um you know hopefully they talk with more pride when they're out there but we've also started to see which is really interesting like at the world cup commentators seem to talk about the fact that our players who no longer play within our system are graduate graduates of right to dream much more than they talk about you know um you know Bako Saka being a graduate of the Arsenal Academy or, you know, or Jordan Henderson being a graduate of the Sunderland Academy or something like that. You know, we seem to get referenced all the time that that's where our kids have come from. And our kids talk about that more than um, than maybe others do. And, and that for us is a sign that we're doing the right things. But we're certainly far from satisfied in that regard and, and like have so much innovation um, and investment that we still need to drive into our environments to to get them to the levels that we that we aspire to which you know as you can see as a theme is you know a lot of the things we're inspired by the american kind of student athlete model rather than the the european academy model not that not that there's nothing to learn there but um as you said i think there is a, a lot that needs to change it seemed to me in england that the model is a little bit like a pyramid so a lot of hell of a lot of kids come in at the bottom and then hardly any make it through as time goes on. Whereas I know with Right to Dream, you're very, very careful, aren't you, about who comes in at the start? 
and then you make a big commitment to them that you're gonna then stick with them you know for a yeah. period of time yeah and and that's for sure like we focus a lot on the recruitment because you know the opportunities that we have at the end are difficult to achieve it's difficult to get into a world-class university especially as a student athlete on scholarship and it's difficult to you know get into fcn which is the youngest team in the world um on the men's side and uh, and and on the women's side um is uh, aspiring to move in that direction as well um so we see it or i see it at least more like a path where a pipe where the bottom of the pyramid is the same is same width at the top so it's a straight pipe and it's like everybody's going through and everybody's going to find the right opportunity for them at the end rather than you know this pyramid just immediately kind of puts this idea in everybody's minds that you're going to get picked off and only a certain percentage can get there and and it's the kind of thing that I think a lot of lazy coaches in the academy system say you know it's like you you know it's only it's only one percent of you that are going to make it and and it's almost viewed as like that being responsible to kind of make them aware of the of the difficulty but I I don't think that's responsible I think the responsibility is to is to change the system so that each kid feels like this is going to be something positive for my my growth and development and your recruitment days in Ghana sound pretty incredible actually the number of kids who come along and then what they do when they're there <clears throat> yeah we're um you know across across Africa now because we're in in, in Egypt as well and and Ivory Coast we've got a hundred thousand kids coming to our trials every year and we're academically screening all of those kids and we've got some super talented um scouts who are also looking for sort of character indicators at the first phase but then we run a um then we run a sort of a process where we then run regional trials and then we run final trials and within that our academic staff and our pastoral staff are all engaged to make a, a holistic decision around academic potential character potential and and then footballing potential and you know one of the things I've learned um which is super hard to build into any talent ideas that like soul really matters and you can see like soulful kids who have a sort of a a joy for life and a, and and an ability to connect with people and a desire to squeeze the most out of every situation that they get into and so I believe that's a really like interesting thing for our future as well and 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 we haven't got into it properly yet we talk about it but it's more informal of like what what would soul scouting look like and 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 um and and I think if we all think about the players that we loved you know like a guy like Cantona that I loved and and and, and Gaza in my youth it's like there was some soul and extra like passion you know there that inspires the fans and can change a game and all those things so we like to keep a lookout for that that kind of stuff as well but that's sort of that's on the fringes it's not not core scouting and sort of talent id is very very difficult isn't it really is there a bit of a risk it can become a bit subjective as well or are you very aware of that we're building a team you know we've employed um a head of um a global uh, recruitment called ian yates who we very deliberately um recruited with a, he started in football but has had a long time out of football and because the because the context in um in our four markets is so wildly different we wanted someone who you know had been thinking in multiple sports in multiple ways because you can't have like a universality to the way that we 
the way that we approach things. You know, what we're very clear on is that we want to go to places which are overlooked and um, and places where people might believe that excellence doesn't exist. And so we need to drive some like core philosophical themes through our recruitment, which is what Ian's doing really well. And then we need adaptability. So we're building, um, you know, we're building a group of, of global scouts who we hopefully, um, first of all, can provide with a life-changing experience of being able to, you know, scout in, in Upper Egypt, in Luxor, which is, you know, probably the most incredible place I've been in my life, but also in, you know, in in, in Northern Ghana and, and in Copenhagen and then in, you know, and then in different communities in America, but apply like our, our, our unique philosophy to different environments and so you know I, within like within a few months of starting in Egypt we'd found like a, a brilliant scout called Amra who you know was just in a local community football environment is now in Ghana and and scouting there and going to other places in the world so Ian's job is to build like a global team of scouts who can apply that overarching philosophy into many different kind of diverse and often challenging communities. And I suppose you've made it sound quite easy, really, the growth of Right to Dream there and the evolution. But it, it must have been incredibly difficult just to set the academy up in the first place, wasn't it? Entrepreneurship in Africa is is as tough as it gets. And, you know, I was fortunate in some ways to uh, enjoy some white privilege in regard to my, um, you know, my journey as an entrepreneur in Africa that, you know, that is in in some really simple things like i was i was talking to to my executive assistant the other day and we we're making the plan for the month and i needed to be um this is trip i'm on at the moment i needed to go from london to uh, monaco to istanbul to antalya to accra to um to california in in the space of two weeks now if, if you're an african entrepreneur that will take you five months to plan from a visa perspective so you know there was like simple things in terms of a british passport which made things easier and then you know access to finance which for me was a massive challenge um but again like i i, I still feel like i was given some preferential treatment because you know money feels a little bit more secure often with a guy like me asking for it. Um, and so, you know, basic things for, for African entrepreneurship are just wildly difficult. And, I, and I'm still just building an appreciation for that um, and, and have so much respect for, for anybody, um, anybody who can make business work in Africa. So, but we still, um, you know, in relation to finance and in relation to the way that FIFA has structured the global game, which prohibits the development of the African game um, in some very very clear ways so you so you're up against access to capital you're up against a system that feels like it's designed to stop African football being successful um, as you know as a couple of starting points and then you know one of the big things I was up against was like my own lack of ability and knowledge as a as an early 20 something trying to make something happen so um, you know, I was I was uh, I was kicked out of school, and so had very very little kind of skill set to to run a business. Even though my, my parents, you know, gave me the absolute best that they could when I was younger, um, and so all of those things meant you know that that it was an uphill battle as well. So you're definitely right in saying that it was um, you know that it was a challenge, uh, but 
you know we managed to we managed to stick at it and and i guess if you haven't got many many options in life it's easier to stick at something and i was probably in that category what were you kicked out of school for uh well it was described as the straw that broke the camel's back so it wasn't particularly it wasn't a particularly like headline grabbing story but i was um you know the interesting thing is that i'm really dyslexic and um and and i've come to um value that attribute that i have maybe more than anything else and and uh, my youngest son is and i'm delighted about the fact that he is and um you know i think awareness around the strengths of dyslexia are, are really starting to uh, filter into the mainstream um you know guys like richard branson and organizations like made by dyslexia kind of really uh educating certainly the uk and i know it's really strong in america especially new york that as a dyslexic you have the ability to join dots up in a different way you have ability to communicate in a different way and you know it's such a high percentage of successful entre entrepreneurs that are that are dyslexic and um you know when i was 11 i i was running two businesses at my school and and nobody nobody like recognized it or encouraged it and then you know they both faded out because there was no support so um i think that was probably like the biggest thing going for me is that i could see the longer term i could connect dots where other people maybe still couldn't and i'm still not good enough when i'm kind of connecting dots for the future of right to dream uh, explaining to my my team why i think these dots kind of join up and then you know not that not all the time but quite often they kind of end up joining up and 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 i don't say you see i told you so but it's kind of like i i still can't explain properly like why i see certain certain patterns and things but that's my kind of that's my skill set that i add to write to dream now and we've managed to bring like brilliant people in to do so many of the things that you know i used to do not particularly well in the early days of write to dream but now they can come in and add like unbelievable quality across sort of the 300 staff that we have there are quite a lot of successful people that have been expelled from school as well aren't there it comes up time and time again yeah yeah oh. <laughs> I, and, and i would i would say that um you know there'll be a very di direct uh, correlation to neurodiversity within that because um you know my eldest son is autistic and my youngest is 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 dyslexic and and all the support that they get to me feels like it's support to help them to conform. And I don't want them to conform to the, the system because they're never going to be, they're never going to excel there. So what I want is, is for the, the power of their neurodiversity to be developed to its fullest. And, um, and, and that is what I'm just super lucky that I fell into something that allowed that to happen for me. Um, but, uh, and I, and I'm also really privileged to have got into a situation where I can kind of firstly understand with my kids, but also, um, you know, invest in managing the situation where I can create unique opportunities for them as well. But for a lot of kids, um, you know, across the world, learning support for neurodiversity is still about helping you to conform into the system rather than make the most of yourself. And in that regard, we're missing like so much ability to take our our communities and our society forwards. And you know, I've, I I I'll probably never get around to it, but I I think something that that is around like profiling of expelled expelled students and and then path and then building pathways for them 
could produce unbelievable results. You know, even if you look at that purely as a just as a business concept rather than anything sort of more more um, CSRE, I think it's it makes a lot of sense. And you do see like MI5 and and NASA and some of the most progressive organizations now are mandating that a certain percentage of their workforce need neurodiversity. So I think I think certainly in in the more progressed Western nations, there's their understanding that they can't solve the problems that they're facing with the A-type conformist. Um, mm. and that they need it and that they need a different perspective on things. Um, but it's got a long way to go. And did you always have very strong re- beliefs about fairness and equality and opportunity as well, e- even as a young man? Well, <laughs> you know, I touched on it before that, um, uh, you know, if you grow up as a, a as a white English middle class kid, um, then the system is not fair at all. Right. And we're the ones who got the best of it. Um and so I think you grow up with a fairly warped opinion of what's fair if you grow up in, you know, in, in, in the way that I do. And then, you know, I, I'm I'm still on a journey with this. So I'm certainly not um, talking about anything that I have a sort of complete answer to. But the level of unfairness that I see directed to towards Africa and towards um, emerging brands from Africa and emerging stories from Africa is absolutely mind blowing and the you know the the almost immovable preconceived notions of what africa and excellence in africa um stands for um you know has got so far to go i don't even know if it's possible um and so uh you know i certainly um learned a lot about fairness on my journey um and I, I can't really remember what I, you know, when I thought when I was young, I probably thought it was unfair if I couldn't have like a Nintendo PlayStation or something. Um, but I'm proud of being of being part of trying to achieve a bit more equality and, and fairness within football and 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 for you know the Ghanaians and 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 future nationalities that come into it. But um it's certainly um certainly a, a a rigged system in my point of view and is that down to prejudice on the part of western countries or is there also an element of trying to keep africa down or is it both of those things yeah it's both of those things um and you know if we take it back into if we take it back into football the first time if i'm if i'm you know if i'm born in niger and i'm a potential world-class footballer the first time that I can get access to an A licensed coach and a grass pitch is at the age of 18, according to FIFA law. Oh, really? Right. You know, and 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 that's because you're not allowed to move below the age of 18. So if I'm a if I'm a, a mathematician or a pianist or a ballet dancer in Niger, obviously it's still very difficult for me, but I'm not legally restricted to move to pursue my passion whereas in football i am mm-hmm. you know and then secondly if i'm looking for exposure um you know for 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 the last many many years um africa has 54 countries and only four slots at the world cup europe has you know less than that number of countries and and you know around 13 slots at the world cup it is nice at the next world cup that um 
that uh, that that Africa's actually going to have eleven slots. So I think there has been a little bit of progress there. But those are just like a couple of like headline examples. And then, um, you know, we were talking to a we were talking to a club recently who wanted to buy one of our players, and this gives another little insight. And they bought a similar player in a similar position um, of a similar ability, but he was Brazilian. And they offered us 60% of what they'd paid for the other player. Mm-hmm. And I asked, why Why is that? And they said, oh, it's because he's a Brazilian. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're saying it to the wrong person because our, our mission is to uplift brand Ghana so you can forget about it. It's not happening if that's your perception. Um, so those are maybe just some anecdotal things of, you know, of, of, of why I, you know, why I know that the system is, is rigged, but then, you know, but then the, the subconscious bias, you know, the way that that's developed within the West towards Africa, the stories that we still tell, you know, and there's a massive legacy, you know, the things that, that, that you and I were told by, um, you know, by Bob Geldof in the eighties, you know, we still play those songs in the supermarket today. And if you stop and listen to the lyrics, um, you know, the, you know, things like the only water that flows in Africa is the tears of, you know, the tears of the people. And do they even know it's Christmas? I mean, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but like, um, you know, what the fuck? And, and, and so those are all the things that, you know, and, and I catch myself, I'm in the supermarket at Christmas, still hum along to the song because it was a part of, you know, part of our youth and and all those things have reinforced like deep, deep misconceptions and subconscious biases, um, you know, and, and, and in England, our class structure even impact, you know, compounds that. Um, so all of those things mean that, um, uh, that it's a huge uphill battle and, you know, and, you know, a really interesting book is like uh, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race you know, for a lot of people um, in Africa, they've kind of given up. They don't care anymore what the West what the West thinks and this and this you know naive narrative. So in Ghana, we we've got um, this uh, kind of movement called the Year of the Return, which is really about um, uh, uh, African Americans, um, African diaspora returning to Ghana, building a better Ghana, and therefore driving a different narrative. And and in and in in Rwanda. Um, we've we've got some pretty phenomenal leadership there um, for showing showing how it can be done. So I think I think Africa is moving into an exciting new phase, and and you know if we take that back to football, that's going to be super exciting. And 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 I think the brands that African football can develop are more appealing for a lot of a lot of players than than playing for their national teams in Europe if they've got dual nationality. You see with Morocco at the last World Cup that 55% of their players were born outside of Morocco. And, you know, historically that's been like players who can't necessarily make it with their European team. But now you see with like uh, Hakimi and these guys that like walk into any team in the world but chooses to go back for Morocco. And I think as Ghana and Nigeria and others develop, um, they'll start to... um, uh, develop their own players better, you know, with things like right to dream as well, but also attracts, attracts, you know, the next generation of, of Danny Welbeck's and, and Bako Sackers and others to come, you know, to come back and, and play as well. So I think all of that stuff takes time. Um, you know, Ghana is only 70 something years old, if my math is right, um, maybe a little bit less. 
And so the you know these things take time, um, but they're they're powerful movements which are going to be really exciting for African football. So the players that you referenced, you think they feel more affiliation with the countries of their, as you call it, origin or heritage than the European countries. I mean, those players that I referenced, I don't know them. If we take like the you know Hakimi example, then you know that's the decision he made, right? And he said, mm. even though I was born in France, I made more. Um, uh, I felt more for Morocco, and that's why I made that decision. Um, but you know, as, as I saw an interview with Anthony Joshua recently, where he said, you know, my nationality is 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 English, but my culture is Niger, mm. and. And that is something that is on the rise and 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 will lead to a lot of opportunities if if African uh, football and sport and culture structures itself right. And and um, you know, in Ghana from a cultural perspective, they're starting to do some really smart things. And the number of like A-list celebrities that you'll find in Ghana at Christmas from around the world has totally transformed as people are looking for um identity connection and you know and, and the chance to build something i think you know i think that that the england is actually a, a a great example of doing it right because um in in relation to football i'm only talking about football um you know with what with what gareth southgate's done you know when i was growing up you know the english national team and some of the hooligan movies associated with it and everything else you know there's there's a number of people who would you know describe the English national team as a representation of the national front in the eighties. And certainly, um, you know, the Windrush generation and, and, and West African immigrants arriving in, um, in, uh, in England would have felt that the, the national team was one of the strongest representations of the negativity that they felt in, in the UK. And so, um, you know, what Gareth has done with the national team and, um, you know, going into the realities of its past and 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 you know reconstructing the future is one of the most inspirational leadership stories within sport in the last twenty years. Um, and and you know, and I know a bit of what a bit of what was done there from working with 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 Pippa Grange and 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 that stuff is is uh, you know is pretty inspiring for some of the things that we think about with our our brand and our culture and and where we're going as well. Do you think it's fair to describe Right to Dream as sort of ultimate socialism because it's about equality of opportunity on, on a big scale? You know? uh, I haven't been asked that question before. <laughs> um, <laughs> obviously, I, I, I identify with theme, like themes that you pull out in, in, in that question. Um, you know, we, uh, we believe that excellence can be found anywhere. And we believe that... Um, uh, the world uh, has a narrow view about what excellence is and where it can come from. And, um, and as a result, we believe that sort of humanity has a lot of unfulfilled potential. And so, um, you know, we're, that's, that's what we're interested in. And, you know, uh, you know, I believe that a lot of the problems that the West is experiencing today or you know more specifically the UK and you know in the US that they won't find the solutions internally and it's and it's diversity and looking beyond the obvious which is going to um, help them find solutions which do exist um, and uh, and so you know we hope 
you know, as you're taking it into that kind of sphere, yeah. we hope that our our graduates can be representations of of something different and and different solutions and different values and and cultural constructs that that you know that, that could help. And I was wondering as well, is it ever hard allying that with capitalism? So where you need big investment to buy FC Norgeland or the academy in Egypt, you know, have you are there ever sort of tensions there at all? Yeah, great question. Um, and you know, I, I talked about it in terms of um, uh, seeing how clubs behaved in 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 Africa and you know really capitalistic in in their mindset and then even when um even when we were trying to engage with clubs feeling that was um you know was one of the reasons that drove us to buy our own club you know it's still an ongoing tension and you know and when we made the pa partnership with the Mansour family um you know one of the inspiring things about about Mr Mansour was that when his family started to make money, everybody else from Egypt would look east, west, north in terms of where to invest and grow. But he looked south into sub-Saharan Africa, and so there was a there was a um, you know a connection there, and you know from that perspective. But one of the challenges we face is that you know when we buy clubs, and you know the fact that that capitalism is not fair right it's um you know it's not it's not all bad but but it's not it's not fair and you have a kid who joins you when you're 11 and and you play you know to a large degree the role of of the family in that regard mm -hmm. and you know my parents didn't introduce me to capitalism i you know i i left i left home and then found out how the world worked whereas when we own when we own the clubs as well and then have to operate within that paradigm we're kind of introducing our kids to capitalism and then you know and, and whoever first introduces you to it can easily be um then thought of as the one who's not fair rather than the fact that capitalism isn't fair and so sometimes you have these difficult situations where where we we're, we're behaving in fcn in 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 the most ethical way we're capable of within the constructs of capitalism and uh and and our kids who are experiencing that for the first time are like well i don't think that's fair and we're trying to say well it's not us it's the system that we live within and then they you know and then they sort of make recommendations about how capitalism could change and 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 and, and we obviously can't do that so you know all that stuff has been quite interesting and helps to drive um how we think about curriculum and the evolution of our curriculums and introducing our kids to the world. But, um, you know, your question is on the money that, that, um, the tension between, uh, our essence and the world that we have to live in is, is kind of a daily, daily debate or daily kind of mental thing for me. And, and, and something which, which with senior management, we talk about quite a lot. Cause I've always massively, um, admired the purpose of right to drink um, because I, th I think maybe football and beyond does struggle with that sometimes. So football, it's about results and making money. And it th that's not an inspiring purpose for a lot of people. No, you know, there's pockets of it that we, um, you know, that we admire. Um, but if you don't go in the um, sort of capitalistic direction for your sustainability, then your option is to go in, you know, in more of a charitable direction to sustain what you do. 
And I think that the origin of charitable money is more con- is more cancerous than the origin of um, of of for profit money, um, and the independence uh, that that for profit money offers. While um, you know, as we talked about, is 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 not total. Um, it's a greater independence than that of 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 the charity world. And I actually think I. Uh, from a funding perspective, could have moved quicker with Right to Dream if I'd built it as more of a charitable brand. Um, but I believe today um, that 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 would have seen ultimately our our downfall because Africa has always been framed within that charitable narrative. And and you know you wouldn't believe it that that you know we still talk to some brands and. Um, you know, we can pitch this or we can present the story of like Mohamed Kudus, who, you know, dominates at the World Cup and is probably on the way to winning Africa's best player over the next couple of years. And 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 a CMO will say, oh, have you spoken to our foundation? But if we tell the story of Mikkel Damsgaard, who came through the Danish Academy and then scores the wonder goal in the semi-final of the Euros against England at Wembley, and that's part of a sponsorship pitch, no one would say, oh, have you spoken to the foundation about his journey? So, you know, the interpretation of that journey and, and, and of elite of, of excellence is just is just really different, you know, where a lot of the decisions lie. Um, and, and so if we if we'd put right to dream and, and we have, you know, received charitable money at points in our growth. Um, but you know, very consciously building our brand and our long-term sustainability um, to not really play in that space because I think the undertones of it are, are actually more dangerous. And what was the thinking behind buying Norgeland? The thinking was that uh, we wanted to control pathways for our players, um, and we wanted to prove that right to dreams philosophy could be adapted into any context and so we're better than in you know in you know one of the most uh, um advanced societies on many metrics um you know in in denmark um we also wanted to play with a team of homegrown teenagers or under 21s and compete at the top of the league um and so that eliminates a number of leagues denmark's like typically ranked the 14th best league in europe roughly on coefficient um you can see some cases a little bit in like austria and and switzerland where it's possible to play young in slightly higher ranked leagues but i'm not sure you you know you could do what you do in you know in in a lot of the top leagues you know you see some good cases like i watched leo play the other day and a lot of young players and it was pretty inspiring but um and and then we also didn't have that much money you know we borrowed we kind of borrowed the money in a in a in a debt equity deal from a you know a really really strong like long-term supporter of, of of right to dream but but we didn't have anyone who was looking to put 100 million in it was 10 million um, and so there was a limit in that regard. And then we also didn't want to go somewhere where we would be kind of pigeonholed into another African project. And Belgium has seen so many of those cases that 
and and Portugal sees a lot of those cases, which are maybe a little bit more about you know just parking players rather than really developing something. And and then we knew with FCN that they'd done a lot of work to build a strong academy, and and it, and it was just sort of coming to fruition. So those are sort of some of the reasons why. But I was even reading they're the youngest team ever in a European league, a top European league. Yeah, so it'd be nice to win the league because then we could put another stat on top of that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, how many um, right to dream Ghana players are in that first team squad at the moment? Oh, a lot. Um, I was just watching training before. Um, you know, I can check as we talk, but it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a lot, and then a lot from um, uh, from from the FCN Academy as well. So we're, you know, we're super proud of that. We've got one, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty, fourteen of our squad have come through the two academies, which is cool. You know, when you when you when you know a player's journey from eleven, it 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 means more. And do you think wider football is looking at right to dream and learning lessons from right to dream and what you've done at Norgeland as well? Yeah, yeah. You know, we see uh and that's actually part of our brand strategy is we want to be replicated um, because that's about opportunity creation. So, you know, firstly, on the academy level in Africa, my inbox is just jammed full of, of people who send me really nice emails about the inspiration Right to Dream provides and the fact that they're trying to replicate the model. And we tried to help with some, but we'd actually like to get that better structured to share all of our knowledge and learning in that regard. It's one of the many sort of projects in the parking lot of, of of things to do one day. And then if you look at um, you know, if you look at, at, at Danish football, you can see the average age has gone down. Um, and that we've had a big impact on that. You know, we've increased player sales in FCN has increased 340% from the six years before to the six years after, but also um, you know, in, in other kind of developmental leagues, Portugal, Belgium. Holland player sales has increased about 80% over that period, but in Denmark, it's increased 190%. So you can see that other clubs are kind of looking at some of the things that we do. And, and um, there's some brilliant competition. Um, you know, FC Copenhagen's average age has dropped significantly. They use a lot of academy players in their team as well. I'm not saying that's just about them them copying us, but maybe maybe it is a little bit. And you know, and Midland were kind of already already at it, and and um, and also did a did projects in Ghana and Nigeria. They don't do anything in Ghana anymore. Um, so there's you know, Danes are, are famed for their innovation anyway, and you know, and and a lot of our innovation in Denmark is not driven from me. It's driven from you know Danes who kind of took the core idea and took it on and evolved it and developed it. So, um, so I, 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 yeah, I think there's a lot of people um, looking to learn from and take parts of our model. And, you know, six years ago when, when I would go around talking about Norgel and, you know, some people remembered that they'd played in the, in the champions league in, in, in 2012, which was a phenomenal achievement. Um, but now with what we're doing, you don't have to introduce the project to anyone, which is is massive credit to everyone who's made that happen at the club. Do you think English teams are learning from what you do as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. In all the other big leagues, when we talk to clubs, I hear them saying, you know, we can do more of what you do. 
but I hear a lot of English clubs saying hey, that wouldn't work here. And um, and I've got no idea why, because I think it's pretty clear that England's got the most talent, young players of any country in the world at the moment. And they're obviously doing a fairly good job to get them through, which reflected in national team performances, but I'm sure they could do more. So I think um, a lot of English football is caught in a... Um, in a in a stereotype of what is and isn't possible and that they really need to change a lot of the language and thinking around the game but then you've obviously got you know guys like Matthew Benham and Tony Bloom who we take huge inspiration from as well mm-hmm. and some of the best innovation in in world football is also happening within the Premier League so um so so it's like any league you know different clubs, different stories, different levels of courage and innovation. We have Simone Lewis as our head of culture who um who drove a lot of um a lot of the uh uh coach education uh, you know across the Premier League and she talks to me in detail about what was achieved with E Triple P and and there's certainly like loads of loads of things that have been done extremely well and um and that's reflected in you know the the increased quality of the premier league you know i i i remember a few years ago if you did have any spare time if there was a top six game on you'd be excited about it but a bottom six game you didn't really want to watch it but now you know you can put a game on like you know leads against <clears throat> southampton or something and you know that you're going to see the best young players in the world playing in that game and and so the league's pushed on a lot and uh, and there's tons to learn from it for sure. And I know you've talked before about maybe opening an English academy. So are you still thinking of doing that? We're all focused on America at the moment. Um, uh, but uh, you know we get we get offers and approach from all over the world all the time. And uh, because because I think that sort of holistic model appeals, and and maybe some people see us as maybe the part of the solution for the way forward for the academy game which is you know we're super proud of and and yeah you know uh i don't rule anything out like we're called right to dream so you gotta keep yeah. the dreams alive and just the last one what are your kpis as a group if, if you'd sort of summarize those <clears throat> so um so our first is is our social impact um and you know that that is that's in the space of the the holistic impact that we have on each of our kids' lives. And then that extends more broadly into um, uh, the impact that they and we have on the communities that we operate in. Uh, the second is is the growth of our brand equity. And, you know, that's in, in relation to um, inspire people, as I touched on, to kind of move in our direction in, in making their own dreams come through or creating opportunities for others who might be overlooked. But that's also, you know, um, our brand equity is in relation to do young players want to come to us rather than other clubs? And we're starting to see, like, you know, Andreas Schellerup was a great case, recently went to Benfica, but he chose us over Liverpool and Ajax and some other clubs. And so, um, and and that's happening a little bit more. So where's our brand equity at in relation to kids wanting to, to join? Um, and then also our brand equity in terms of how we can engage with commercial partners to to take us forwards um our third is in relation to football performance and 
you know that's the one that's probably easiest to to develop the KPIs the league table is 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 where you start but but you know we look at um you know what's the what's the quality of the pipeline of players in our system what's the success of our graduates when they leave you know what's the value of our total global um solidarity what's the value of our uh, retained percentages you know around the world we had seven players playing at the world cup this you know this last world cup which is a is is a kpi within um within football performance so quite a broad set of kpis within football performance and then the last is 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 financial sustainability um and um you know we we we're not for dividend organization so everything goes back in um but you know when we're not in growth phases we obviously don't want to be um uh, making capital calls to our to our to our owners and investors so um you know we haven't quite got there yet but we're you know we're moving in the right direction with that and and we're growing so much at the moment that a lot of our investment is in is in growth so those are the four those are the four metrics that that we assess ourselves on oh well that's fantastic thank you so much for your time today no, you're welcome. It's, it's great to talk. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.